You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, we're in the book of 2 Thessalonians tonight, and I'm looking forward to getting to this book. It's kind of like, as I was thinking about Thessalonians and reading it this week, Second Thessalonians, it seems like it's just like an addendum to 1 Thessalonians. It's like 1 Thessalonians was written and some of it was misunderstood. And so Paul, as the writer of 1 Thessalonians, decides that he needs to write something just to, to correct and encourage and, and to give a little bit further instruction on, in the area of the second coming and then in the area of how that applies to the lives of believers. So I don't want to spend a ton of time here this week, uh, but I do want to get into just a little bit of what 2 Thessalonians offers that helps us understand 1 Thessalonians even better. Um, as I was thinking about giving lessons and, and preaching, I remembered a quote that I had heard uh, by a uh, preacher named Kevin DeYoung. And I've heard him say it while he was praying, while he's preaching. So when he was writing this down in a book, I was like, oh yeah, I've heard you say that before. And when he prays before his sermon, he prays something like, Lord, I pray that the people hear a better sermon than what is preached. And And he was joking about that because... I mean, not joking about the fact that he, he hopes that happens. That's, that's a good thing. But he was joking about the fact that there are a lot of times it seems like people hear completely different sermons than what it's preached. Um, I, I taught this week, and afterwards, uh, somebody came up to me and they said, hey, listen, this was something that the you know, Lord really talked to me about in your lesson. And I was thinking, I don't remember mentioning that at all. <laughs> but it's wonderful that you got that. And then they explained to me how what I said actually applied to their lives and how it applied and, and how the Holy Spirit had used it. And I thought, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, like the Holy Spirit made a connection that I hadn't made in my mind, and so it's wonderful to have the Holy Spirit work. But I, I say that because in this book, it kind of seems like Paul says something, and there are people in the church that, that almost purposely interpret it the wrong way. And they're taking it the wrong way, and then they're using something that he said in order to justify how they want to live their lives, or how they are living their lives. And Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, is very clear that that is not what they should be doing, that they should be watching, and they should be vigilant, that they should be sober, that they should be on guard, that they are supposed to be active. But in this letter, he's correcting a problem where it seems like people are becoming complacent, complacent in their work, complacent in, in their lives. And so we'll, we'll get into that this evening. Let's pray, and because uh, if we don't pray, if we don't have the Holy Spirit work really nothing matters here. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, we thank you for the power that he gives. Lord, I pray that he would empower me tonight as I speak and your word. And Lord, I pray that as we listen, that you'd help um, your word to sink into all of our hearts. Lord, I pray that it would change often and moldable in your hands. Uh, God, I pray that as we see the problem that um, the Thessalonians faced here, the the wrong doctrine that was being taught, that we would... Um, correct whatever's wrong in our lives, Lord, and if it applies to us, Lord, we get that right, and you'd help us to ensure that we're not using your word for our own devices, but we are um, submissively being obedient to it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word, we thank you for your spirit, we thank you for Christ, we pray in his name, amen. So the author of the book is, once again, Paul, and Paul writes in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, it's Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas, 
and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you compare that to his introduction in the last letter, it is almost completely identical. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, Paul is the primary author, and then Silas and Timothy are there because they had also invested in the church. And so Paul wanted to say, listen, this is, this is all of us that were there, that loved you, that, w- that worked with you, that are trying to now give you some instruction. The date it was written, it was A.D. 52 to 53. So if you remember 1 Thessalonians, the, the date was 51 to 52. And so Paul is writing this letter fairly close to that time. We don't know. Some people think it was a matter of months. Some people think it was a year later. But it was somewhere around the same time because he's writing, it seems like, to correct some of the problems that directly relate to what he wrote to in the first letter. The audience of the letter in verses 2 to 4 is the church of Thessalonica. We talked a little bit about the city of Thessalonica last week. We saw that Thessalonica was the capital city of the, of the region of Macedonia, which is a very big, very important region. So it's a very big city, about 200,000 people at the time. Uh, and we saw that it's a very important Roman colony, that is a very important political city, a city of commerce. And it's important or it's helpful for us to know that just because it, it gives us an idea of some of the things that they faced. So if you have this city, it's an important city, a big city, then they face the sin. If it's a Roman colony, they, they face some of those things that, that the believers in Philippi would have faced, where they're so loyal to Rome and to worship of Nero. And so these things help us to just, just get our bearings as we go into the book. Uh, I, I came across something this week that was interesting about the city, and it was just, I'll share it with you, is that the city had a very romantic beginning. Uh, back in about 315 years earlier, uh, Alexander the Great had conquered all of this area, all of Macedonia. And when he did that, there was many, many villages that were burned and completely destroyed. Well, after this time, he gave his brother-in-law, so his sister's husband, whose name was uh, Cassander, charge of this region. And so Cassander built this, this wonderful city of Thessalonica, and he called it Thessalonica after his wife. So it's a very, very pretty place, very beautiful place, and a wonderful city. And it's actually still called Salonica today. And it's the second largest city in Greece today. About 800,000 people live there. So that's a little bit of background of the city. Um, the church here was established by Paul. He wasn't there for very long, at least three weeks, probably more like two months, but not a long time before the, the Thessalonians kicked him out of their city and told them not to come back or that he didn't want him to come back. As we read both 1st and Thessalonians, we find out that Paul was very impressed by this church. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Remember last week we said one of the greatest things that believers can have and do is have faith and charity, faith and love. When you have those things in your life, you're just, you're started out on the right track. Well, these, what he's saying at the beginning of this is you have the faith. You have the charity that abounds for one another. You're, you're on the right track in your Christian life. So in verse 4 he says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. This was not a church that persecution was foreign to. They, they understood it. They were going through it. They were in the fire. Okay, persecution was happening all around, this, happening to them, and it was a church that was standing firm in their faith. And Paul was, was impressed by that, and he was thankful for that. So what is the purpose of this letter then? If Paul's impressed by this church overall, why is he writing the letter to correct them? 
Well, he writes to correct misunderstandings about Christ's second coming and to exhort believers to remain faithful in their sovereign Lord. To remain faithful to their sovereign Lord. Now, I've got to give you a quick disclaimer on this because I am not like a prophecy buff. Okay, You know, there's some people that they just love prophecy. They study Daniel. They study Revelation. They study First and Second Thessalonians. They study Matthew 24. They study all of those relevant passages, and they just love that stuff, love to try and figure out exactly how everything fits together and trying to, to tell you, you know, this perfect order of events. Now, I don't do that, and the truth is, sometimes that kind of thing scares me a little bit. Because if you've noticed throughout the years, the vast majority of cults, have had an obsession with the second coming. They all focus on it. They all love it. Now, I'm not saying we should love the second coming. It is our blessed hope. So we should not be afraid of it. But at the same time, I was thinking about the book of Revelation, right? And in the book of Revelation, God could have easily said, here's a chronological order of all the events that would happen exactly as they'll happen. That is not how he chose to reveal the second coming to us. If you were here a few years ago, Pastor preached, it was a lot of years ago now, Pastor preached through the book of Revelation. And at the end of his, his series in Revelation, I did not leave saying, listen, I think I know how it all fits together. I, I get it. I get the dates and I get the times and I get the events and I know how it's going to work. Didn't, didn't finish the series like that. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. That wasn't the purpose. <laughs> that wasn't the purpose. Right. And it's absolutely, he's absolutely right. It wasn't the purpose. But do you know what I, I did leave? after the series of Revelation, understanding the awesomeness of Jesus Christ and understanding how we have to fear him. And not in a, uh, oh, I'm terrified of God because he just wants to squish me. In a, he is so awesome and so great and so wonderful and so powerful and so mighty. And someday he is just going to rule and reign over this place. It's an awesome picture of the victory of Christ, ultimately. He is the king that will reign. And so I think that's more of the purpose of a lot of these things. And, and what that did for me in my life was it, it became practical. Because if Jesus is the king and the Lord, and he's that powerful and that great, he's worthy to be worshipped every day of my life. He's not a small God. He's, he's a great God, a big God. So we have to worship him all the time. Well, when Paul writes in First Thessalonians, you'll notice that every time he speaks about the second coming, he's attaching some kind of action to it, that you'll be comforted, that, that you'll be able to hope, that you'll live in this, that because of these things, you'll stay firm and strong in your faith. So he expects the second coming to be an encouragement to them, to, to encourage them to continue on in obedience. And when we speak about the second coming and we're not attaching some kind of action, some kind of obedience or some kind of change in us that's going to happen, then I think we're wasting our time. Hey, this, like Jesus very clearly said, you will not know the day or the hour. And I think we could also, I hate to say add to it, but I think we can also say just from the way the Bible reveals itself, you're not going to know exactly how it's going to happen. You won't know all the details. There's some mysteries we don't understand and that's okay. And so I am not a prophecy buff. And the purpose of Second Thessalonians, just like first, I don't think is to give us every detail about the second coming or the rapture or how that's going to happen. But I do think it is to call us to some kind of action. And so he's, he's correcting misunderstandings about Christ's second coming, but then he's exhorting believers to remain faithful to their sovereign Lord. He has something that he wants to accomplish in that. And so 
the problem that seems to be occurring is that they have this misunderstanding. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul encourages believers that the second coming of Christ is imminent. He says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And so they, they've had some confusion over the resurrection and how that's going to work. He begins in verse 13 and says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know that those that are asleep, those that have already died in the faith, they're not lost. They're not gone. I think they had this idea that if you didn't remain until the coming of Christ, then maybe you were lost forever. And so he wanted them to know that they're not lost, that, that there's a resurrection for them. In fact, the, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then he wants them to know that Christ is coming back, that it's imminent. Uh, let's jump down to chapter 5, verse 1. He says, But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. So the, the coming is as a thief in the night. Christ will come at any time. His coming is imminent. So he wanted them to know that, hey, be encouraged. Those that are gone already, they'll still rise. They're going to be okay. And you're going to be okay if you're here. And be, be ready because he, he's coming at any time. He's coming as a thief in the night. You won't know. And then in the next verse, he says why he says that. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Okay, so because he's coming at any time, let's watch and be sober. Let's get busy. Let's be doing something. Well, the, this problem of this false teaching comes in that the day of Christ is actually now. That they've switched it from Christ is coming, it's imminent, to it's now. And we see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes, verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you, bo- that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. We don't want you to be shaken. We don't want you to be nervous. We don't want you to be scared that the day of Christ is already at hand, that it's here. Hey, it's not here yet. He says in verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that the man of sin shall be revealed, the son of perdition. So he's saying there are some events that will happen. So though it's imminent, though he will come at any time, it's not immediate. It's not happening right at that time, it hasn't already happened, because they're living as though they're going through this, this tribulation period already. That, that this persecution they're facing is a tribulation. And, and the problem is, because, I mean, there's, there's a logical connection that you can make from their actions, and what he's correcting in their actions, to this belief that the day of Christ is already at hand. What they're doing is they're quitting their jobs. They stop working. Well, why, why, why keep working? I mean, why pay your bills? Why pay off your MasterCard? Why not go rack up debt? Because Christ is coming. He's at hand. He's already here. And so there's this, this wrong teaching or misunderstanding of the second coming of Christ has translated in this church to uh, some members, at least, thinking that it's okay to just stop working and stop worrying about anything that's going on in this life because, hey, Christ is here. He's coming. The day of Christ is at hand. Belief at the end was now led to disobedient living. Okay, so what, what was it? It was that they were, they were living disobediently, and I want to share the verses with you. In 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you that if you would not work, neither should you eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. 
There are people there that are just, they're lazy, they're not working, they're not, and they're expecting everybody else to take care of them. That's not how you should live. And so he wants them to know that they have a responsibility to remain faithful and to be obedient. And so he says many commands that they should follow. Okay? And, and if, if we were to command somebody to do this, we'd expect that, that they're going to do this all on their own. He says, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, Let no man deceive you. Okay? It's your responsibility. Don't let someone deceive you. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or epistle. Listen, brethren, stand fast. Be strong. Don't quit. Stand fast. Take hold on the traditions we taught. In other words, the things that we told you in the first letter that you should do, keep doing them. Don't quit what we've taught you. Keep being obedient. He commands them to do this. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. So he's giving them commands. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. Okay? Withdraw yourselves from the brothers that are being disobedient. In verse, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, For ye yourselves know how you ought to follow us. So follow our example. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Do what we've done. Follow the example we set for you. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.13, he says, But brethren, be not weary in well-doing. He's giving all these commands to them that they should be able to follow by themselves, right? Seems like that. But what I love about this book, Philippians often does the same thing, but this book, more than most books, very clearly shows us how we are responsible to live obedient lives to God that Christians have commands that they need to keep, that you can't just let this life happen to you, that you are supposed to be walking in obedience. And at the, the same time, simultaneously, he is showing them how God is, is doing all these things in them and through them, that it's not them by themselves. And so if, if I was to tell you know, a person to do these things that Paul just told them to do, and they didn't have the Spirit of God, they didn't have the power of God, it would be like telling a rock to speak to me. Rocks don't speak, right? I guess unless God tells them to, they can. But in general, they can't until God tells them to, right? And, and what he's trying to say is it's the same deal. Because look at what he says. Paul reminds believers who is working in them to be faithful. So not only do you have to be faithful, be obedient, keep doing, stand fast, but look at who's working in you. Look at the power you have. Second Thessalonians 2.16 now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Who's going to do it? It's the Lord that is going to comfort your hearts. It's the Lord that's going to establish you in every good word and work. It's God that's going to do that. In Second Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 3, he says, but the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Didn't he command them already to stay away from evil, to do right? Yes, he did. And yet here he says it's the Lord that's going to keep you from evil. He says in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things we command you. He's not confident that they're strong enough on their own. He's confident in the God that he serves, that the God he serves will work in them so that they'll do what he commands them to do. 
Verse 5 says, And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So Paul here is giving them all these commands, but he wants them to know that they're not alone in it. They have God to empower them to help them. And so the purpose of the book is to correct these misconceptions, but then to encourage and exhort them to live a life of faithfulness to their sovereign Lord. Pastor? I, know, I mean, this is really the paradox in Christianity. When, when God tells us to live this way, it's impossible. And that's the great grace we have through the Spirit of God that we have to rely upon Him because we can't do these things on our own. Absolutely. And so it really does encourage us that, that we know in ourselves we can't, but by the power of God we can. It's an amazing thing. Yep. It really is the, the key to Christian living. Absolutely. And, and that's why no believer can stand in failure, mm-hmm. in, in defeat. If you're defeated... It's not because you can't. It's because you won't. Why? Because it's not about you. I know you're not powerful enough. I know that that sin that, that holds you is too strong for you. The problem is, we are not willing to take the steps to allow God work in and through us to have the victory that only he can give us. Hey, don't you think sometimes too, it's a problem that we, maybe as pastors, we... We, we sometimes have a tendency to say, do, 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 right in this list. Mm-hmm. And we fail to re- remind people that they can't. Yeah. All right? Mm-hmm. And that they need the Spirit of God. I think sometimes we have to be careful with that, too, that we let people know that it, you, you need the Christ mm-hmm. within you to live your mm-hmm. life out through you. Yeah, I think, I think what ends up happening is because we focus so much on what we expect you to do, sometimes we get people that look good on the outside but really they're not changed on the inside. And the whole goal of this is, I guess the greatest picture is probably John chapter 15 with Jesus being the vine and us the branches. The goal of this is to say, you're attached to the vine, that means things will be different in life, they should be different in life, but the power that you have is coming from the vine. And so, live out that. Sorry, Bruce, yeah? I think, too, that our nature's work against us. Mm-hmm. It's easy for me to do good for a while and then congratulate me. Yep. <laughs> Right? And you like to do that. And that's always followed. And I don't know about anybody else, but with me, that's always yeah. followed by imminent failure, right? Like yeah. if you, you know, you can do good for a while, congratulate yourself, and then fall. Mm-hmm. And, and because you forget that you didn't, that even if you did good for a while, yeah. you didn't do it. Yeah. You just did what you're supposed to do, and the Lord did it through you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As soon as we, as soon as we think we got something covered, we get proud, and then we before pride come with the fall. That's it. So the outline of the book, the verses 1 to 4, greeting and thanksgiving. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 12, is judgment and vindication. And there, Paul encourages the church that judgment, ultimate judgment, will come. And it is encouraging for the church. This church is going through persecution to know that one day, those that are persecuting them will be judged that God is not just going to leave them alone, that there's, there's no free ticket without Christ. They will be judged. And someday the righteous will be vindicated and reign with the Lord. That, that is encouraging for us, and it's encouraging for them. And so that's what chapters, chapter 1, verses 5 to 12 speak about. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 speak about correction and revelation. Here's where they, where they get the correction on what the second coming is about. And, and what he's trying to tell them there is that Yes, it's imminent, and yes, Christ is coming, and yes, that should spur us on to good works, but it's not, it's not right now. Don't quit. You've got to keep going until that happens, until that day. So he helps them understand some, some more information about what the second coming is going to look like. 
And I do like how in that, that passage, I didn't get into this yet, but in, in that passage he speaks the most anywhere else in the Bible speaks about of the Antichrist. And so he gives some of his character, some of his mission, what he's going to be like. But then so quickly, I mean, it's not like his pen doesn't leave the paper before he writes this. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, he says, And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It's like there's this momentary, this is the Antichrist, and he's so bad and scary, and, and he's got this terrible plan, and God's going to destroy him. That's, that's the end. And so just don't worry so much about that. So he gives them this correction of revelation, and then in chapter 2, verses 13, to chapter 3, verse 15, he gives them an encouragement and a rebuke. He's, they're encouraged to, to continue in their faith, to not grow weary in well-doing, to, to be obedient, and the, their laziness is rebuked. In chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, he concludes with a salutation and a benediction. And so the key verse that I've chosen for the book is 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. It says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or epistle. Stand fast. So, based on Paul's example, he gives them this rebuke and this encouragement in this letter. I thought that it'd be fitting for us to do the same thing tonight. And so what is a rebuke we could get from this book? I think the rebuke that I can take away from this book is stop making excuses for your disobedience. Stop making excuses. You don't have the excuse like they were trying to use that that God is already coming, that he's already here. So we can just do whatever we want. And you don't have the excuse that you can't do it in your own power because he clearly lays out all the reasons why you can do it. So stop making excuses for our disobedience. Uh, we, We justify our sin. It's so easy for us to see other people's sin and to condemn it, but somehow we just make our sin make sense. You know, in our situation, if you understand my circumstances... You know, if you knew what I've been through, if you knew my mom, <laughs> you'd get it. But nobody was was brought up perfectly. And we're all in the same boat as sinners that have no hope in ourselves, right? None of us have strength. And so he is taking away that excuse in saying that it's not your strength. It's not your power. So stop making excuses for our sin. Yeah, just one line. I know it's... But we see this enough when, when people make excuses for their sin there's never any victory in their life they yeah. stay the same yeah. there's never growth there's never any spiritual moving in their life there's nothing you can't move forward absolutely make you're right and, and I think what happens sometimes is we make an excuse in one area but then we stand back and we kind of expect God to grow us in other areas right it's like okay Lord I know you've talked to me about this sin but Let's leave that one alone right now and just let's focus on other things. And God doesn't do that. He doesn't leave that alone and say, okay, we'll come back to that later. He says, no, 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 this is what I've spoken to you about. And so if we're just going to make an excuse for that, we're not going to grow. And there's not really this level ground that people get to. You're either growing or you're, you're falling away. So we, we must continue to grow and we must stop making excuses for our disobedience. That's the rebuke. The encouragement is this. As we will to obey, he empowers and comforts. As we will to obey, he empowers and comforts. Uh, I think Christianity is a little bit like stepping into a boat. And the question is, what kind of boat are we stepping into? And there's some people who think that it's kind of like we're in this motorboat that's on autopilot. You've... you've 
trusted Christ, you've, you've got into the boat, you're there, but now this motorboat on autopilot is going to just take us wherever we need to go. And that's not a right thinking about how this works in our life. Hey, it's not like you just get into the boat and then you have no control and you let go and you let God do everything in your life. That's, that's not his plan. There are so many commands given to us in Scripture that don't make any sense if all we're supposed to do is jump in the boat and then fold our hands and just wait for God to do everything. Okay, God expects something of us. So it's not us just getting into a motorboat. It's also not like us getting into a canoe going upriver. It's not like we get in there and then we're in this canoe all by ourselves and we're paddling like crazy trying to find our way and, and trying to fight the current. And I mean, there is a current and, and there's, there's trials and there's troubles and stuff, but it's not just like we're in this canoe. I think that the Christian life makes most sense when we compare it to getting into a sailboat. Because you get into a sailboat, but you don't just get in the sailboat and sit down, right? You, I, I mean, I'm not a sailor, but the way I understand how it works is that you have to let out your sails and tie your ropes properly, and can constantly be adjusting little things, and constantly checking your course, and constantly checking your ropes, and constantly trying to see where the breeze is blowing, and where, how this whole thing is working, so that you can make sure you're going the way you're supposed to be going. You're not completely independent of the whole process. You're, you're there. Okay? But at the same time, God is the wind that makes the whole thing move. He is the power behind it all. And so if we're willing to just do the little things he says, then his wind fills our sails and we go the direction he wants us to go. And that's the Christian life. It's not boat on autopilot. It's not canoe where you're expected to do everything on your own power. You get in there, you do what he tells you to do, and he empowers you to go where you're supposed to go. That is the Christian life. The Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things we command you and the Lord direct your hearts to love God and to the patient waiting for Christ. And that's what it's all about. Allowing the Lord to do what the Lord will do in us when we allow him to. As we will to obey, he empowers and comforts. Last week, I left you with a conclusion and I thought the conclusion that I left you last week was fitting for tonight. And so there was three things there. Number one, praise God for the blessed hope. Paul still wants them to do that. He wants God to be praised for how wonderful and how marvelous he is for the, the blessed hope that he is coming back and one day will be with him for eternity. Live in that hope every day. Let's not get so wrapped up in our worlds. Live in that hope. Keep that hope in mind. And finally, let that hope draw you to Christ and continually away from this world.